Job chapter 35. Today we come to the third of four speeches by Elihu, this angry young man who waited his turn. He waited until all the others had finished speaking before he speaks. And when he begins, he really captures our imagination, speaking of the place of listening, uh, the, cr- the constructive nature of suffering. And he seems to really have some good things. But then in his second speech, he loses us when he turns from being compassionate to one who wishes that Job would suffer even more. If you look in chapter 34, verse number 36, oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. What happened? How did Elihu go from being this compassionate? He was angry, but angry at the friends, I think, as much as at Job. How does he go from being this compassionate man to this one who turns against Job? We saw two reasons last Sunday for this change. First of all, Elihu made the assumption that in the matter of divine providence, that is how God is working in our lives, specifically here, why all these things have happened to Job, is subject to human judgment. That is, if we just put our heads together, we can figure this out. We can come to understand fully why God is doing what he is doing in a given situation. In fact, if you read verse number four of chapter 34, it should sound eerily familiar to you. Uh, Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. I don't know about you, but to me it sounds very much like the conversation between the serpent and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in which the serpent says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Elihu says, "Okay, boys, let's put our heads together and we will figure this thing out. The second reason for the change is that Elihu believes that he can or that he should defend God. And this is what he sets to do out in his second speech. And that's what the bulk of the speech is about. Now, I understand and it makes me nervous because I am, in fact, walking a razor's edge here. Because I say that, that Job be, or Elihu became this, this hard-hearted man because he assumed that he could understand what God was doing in the life of Job. He could figure it out. And because he believed that he should defend God. I don't want to suggest for a moment that we don't have the ability to reason or that we are not to use that ability. I, of course we are. I don't want to suggest that we don't have the ability to discern right from wrong. We are to use that ability. I'm not suggesting that we should believe blindly without thought. We are to believe, but it is not to be without reason, without discernment or without thought. I don't want to suggest that we are not to stand up for God's holiness and righteousness that we are not to treat his person with reverence and awe. And in the Ten Commandments, we have just a small part of that, that we are not to take God's name in vain. The name represents his person, and therefore we are to be very careful. So what is the problem? Why do I think that Elihu has crossed the line here? I think he has. And how are we supposed to know? 
He's crossed the line, and I think we see this in his treatment of Job. We see a complete loss of compassion for Job and a more severe judging of Job than we've heard thus far in the book of Job. In verse number 35 of chapter 34, Job speaks without knowledge. In other words, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then in verse number 36, as I mentioned earlier, oh, that Job might be tested to the uttermost or to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. I believe that we are to live in tension between the reality of who God is in his revelation and the reality of who we are as fallen human beings. I find two extremes in the church today, and it's not to say that everyone is at one of the two extremes or a lot of people in between. But on the one hand, we have those with whom I think I would feel a, a kinship, those who stand for what is right based on God's revelation in creation, in Scripture, supremely in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, they seem to lack any compassion or any graciousness whatsoever. On the other hand, you have those who call themselves Christians, and I think we might even want to put Christians in quotation marks, because they've basically given away the Gospel, they've given away everything that we might find in Scripture about God, They've diluted or destroyed the truth in so many ways. And yet they seem to have great compassion for those who are in need. Now, I want to stand for what is right. I believe that God has spoken in Scripture and that I'm to use my mind. Faith is not to simply be uh, some existential experience where I just believe without knowing what I believe. So I want to stand for what is right, but I also want to be gracious and compassionate. So how is it that I can have the best of both worlds? Well, I mentioned earlier that we are to live in tension. But I think there's something else. I think we need to accept the limits that God has put on us. I think both sides, in many ways, claim to have all the answers. I believe that we do have answers in Scripture. We're not left in the dark. God has revealed himself to us. He's told us what he wants us to do, how we are supposed to live, uh, all the things I think that are important for human existence. But we need to acknowledge the limitations that we have. First of all, that we cannot fully understand what God has said, but we can understand, I think, enough to make us responsible. That our reason is flawed at best. That we cannot understand it all. And I see both extremes in the church today sort of basically saying, no, I do get it. I do understand it. On the one side, we would say conservative. They're saying, we stand for the truth. We stand for the Bible. On the other side, basically giving the Bible away. Um, I think of Bishop Spong, for example. Um, who wrote a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. This is an Episcopal bishop, and what he wants Christianity to become is Buddhism. Okay? So, in terms of theology, we have almost no relationship whatsoever to these people, and yet we see them doing great acts of kindness. Both sides claim to know everything, 
and both sides, I think, have great blindness. One lacks compassion, the other one lacks the truth. In Elihu's third speech, he goes back to something that Job had said earlier, earlier in the book, but something that he mentions in chapter 34. And, and the bottom line is, what use is it, or what is the use of being good? And he deals with two further questions to sort of open this up, and that is, what do I gain by not sinning, and why doesn't God answer my prayers? These questions, by the way, were asked in chapter 21, and Eliphaz answered them in 22. Now Elihu takes on the task himself. Follow along, if you would. We'll read the whole chapter through. It's uh, 16 verses, uh, and then we will go through it. Then Elihu said, do you think that this is just? You say, I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask him, what profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? I would like to reply to you and to your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself. And your righteousness only the sons of men. Men cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. But no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches more to us than to the beast of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him and you must wait for him? And further, that his anger never punishes, that he does not take the least notice of wickedness. So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. The first question is, what do I gain by not sinning? Stop and think a minute. If somebody came up to you today and asked you that question, why shouldn't I sin? What do I gain by not sinning? Or why should I do the right thing? How would you answer them? Seriously, what answer would you give to such a person? Elihu gives two answers, and neither one of them is really satisfactory, but I suspect they might be the answers that we would give. On the one hand, um, this we probably wouldn't, but he says that God is so transcendent and so far above us that he's not affected by what we do. So do whatever you want. It does not affect God. On the other hand, Elihu says the consequences of your actions affect you and those around you. So don't sin. Now, if you look at verse number eight, I think that. Uh, Elihu makes a strong point here and one that we would do well to embrace. And that is that one sin affects a person. It also affects the community. Your wickedness affects uh, only a man like yourself and your righteousness only the sons of men. It doesn't affect God. It doesn't touch God. But it does affect you. It does affect the community. And uh, I think we would do well to, under, to remember this and to understand 
when I sin, there are implications in my life and in the lives of others. But he's missed something here. Because what he seems to be saying is it only affects, in fact, if you look at verse number 8, your wickedness affects only a man like yourself, your righteousness, only the sons of men. So it is limited to the human situation. It is limited to human history. It does not, in fact, go beyond that. Elihu argues that one only has to look up and to realize that God is so much higher than we are that none of our actions can affect him, either positive or negative. Nothing we do affects him. Nothing, anything that we do can hurt him or can help him. By the way, this is almost the same exact argument that Eliphaz gave in chapter 22. But think a minute. Would you agree with this? Would you agree that nothing we do affects God, whether for good or for bad? Because we would say that God is complete. God is perfect. You can't add anything to him. You can't take anything away from him. He cannot be added to by our goodness. He cannot be diminished by our wickedness. I think we would agree with that. But then let's take the next step. Does this mean that God could care less about how we live our lives? If that if that's true, then what's the whole point of justice? If God doesn't care how we live, then hasn't Elihu, not Eliphaz, but Elihu, basically just shot himself in the foot and ruined his whole case. He's been telling Job, listen, you're a wicked man. You drink scorn like water. You're a wicked man. Oh, and by the way, God could care less how you live your life. Then why bother having categories like wickedness? And why is Job suffering for being wicked if God doesn't care if you're wicked or you're righteous. Based on Elihu's argument, God is completely indifferent to human activity. But this isn't true. And if only Elihu could have been there back in chapter 1 when God spoke to Satan and said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God says to Satan, have you considered this? This wonderful man. What is, how do we answer Elihu, by the way? How do we answer him? We say, Elihu, we agree with one part and we disagree with the, one, the other part. Yes, God in his nature is not affected by our sin or righteousness. God's complete. Can't add or take away from him. But his person is, in fact, grieved by sin and pleased by righteousness. Elihu sees things as black and white. And for him, he does exactly what the friends have done. He takes such an extreme position that if you take it to the logical conclusion, then the God he's talking about is a God that we do not comprehend. 
The second question is, why doesn't God answer my prayers? It's really a continuation of the the issue, the nature of God. If God doesn't care what we do, if we do good things, if we do bad things, if God doesn't care, then why would God listen to our prayers? Why would he answer our prayers? Job's question, by the way, is not stated here. If you look at verses 9 through 13, the question isn't there. What we do have is the answer. And so we can deduce the question based on the answer. But before we jump in, stop and think again a minute. Have you ever asked the question, why doesn't God answer my prayer? I think we probably all have. And what is the answer? Well, Elihu, he's got three quick answers. Three reasons why God doesn't answer your prayer. First of all, pride, verse 12, because of the arrogance of the wicked. Secondly, verse 13, wrong motives, their empty plea. Third reason, lack of faith. Verse 14, when you say you do not see him. Because of your pride, because of your motives, because of your lack of faith, God does not answer your prayer. Job, that's why God hasn't answered you. Now again, this is, we would agree with part of what Elihu says. Uh, James wrote in his epistle, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So there is something to what Elihu says. But there are two problems. The first is, if pride, wrong motives, and lack of faith keep your prayers from being answered, who of us would ever have any of our prayers answered? Would we not all agree that when we pray, our motives are not always perfect? Would we not agree that when we pray, unbelief always seems to be there with us? I think this came home to me years ago, and I've mentioned this a number of times. Uh, Mrs. Schaefer, in her book, uh, Labrie, telling the story of uh, how they started the ministry there, talks about what her son Frankie, uh, when he contracted uh, polio, uh, they were in Switzerland, her husband was in Italy, and so she had to make some decisions. And this doctor said, we have this, this new experimental treatment. Uh, I'm going to give him a shot now, and I'll give him one uh, in the morning. And so they gave him the shot. And she said she prayed all night, asking for wisdom and asking God you know, to spare Frankie. And, and she puts this fascinating statement. She said, of course, my motives weren't pure. And I remember when I read that, I thought, well, that's a very odd thing to say. You're asking for wisdom. This is your child, uh, your son, the youngest. He's got polio. You don't know what to do. This man might possibly have something to save him, of course your motives are pure. But I think Mrs. Schaefer's wisdom is far greater than mine. She understands no one has pure motives in prayer. We come into the presence of God with dirty hands. We just need a bath. I mean, we're just impure. 
So if Elihu is right, that God doesn't answer prayers because of pride, wrong motives, and lack of faith, then no prayer ever in human history, except for the prayers of Jesus, would be answered. So that's one problem. The second problem is, none of these three are true about Job. They do not relate to his case. Job has sought God's, uh, God to answer, and God has not answered him. Elihu, after such a great beginning, a promising beginning, is such a disappointment at this point. He is, I think, a great illustration of what human wisdom can provide at its best. He, pre he presents the human perspective, which is limited. And as a result, it is distorted. Why, why is it? Because Elihu's view of God is of one who is manageable, someone who is predictable, and someone he can understand. For Elihu, he's got God figured out. And he knows how to get God to do what you want. He knows how to predict what God will do in a given situation. He understands God. And that's Job's problem. Job speaks. He has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't know. I know. You know, this is really, it is a position that many people take, but it is a ridiculous position to take when you think about it. Let's not talk about the big God who created reality. Just talk about reality in general. The situations in your life. Are they manageable? Are they predictable? Do we understand what is going on? If that's not true about life, then how can we claim to have such knowledge about God? And for me, this was a crisis point in my life. Uh, well, I was a pastor here at the church. Because God was not acting in a predictable way. And it, I don't know that I would say it almost ruined my faith, but it certainly was a great threat to my faith. I thought I understood God. And God was acting in a way quite contrary to the way I thought he should. That would never happen for Elihu. He's got God scoped out. He's got him all figured out. And poor Job, poor pathetic Job, you need to suffer a little bit more because you don't understand God the way that I do. One author writes, I think, wonderfully, there is a wildness to the divine ordering of things, which the Elihus of this world cannot stand. Elihu cannot bear very much reality. Elihu's God is too tidy and too small. Wild is not perhaps the first word that comes to mind when we think of God. But it might be a word that we should add to our thoughts of God. God is not predictable. He is not manageable. He is not someone that we fully understand. See, it's the problem there of the limits of saying, I understand everything about God. And when a person takes that position, how do we know they've taken that position? Because whatever compassion, whatever grace they had goes out the window. And now they speak as the final authority. Lest we all leave this place, though, and think, boy, what a waste of time to study Elihu. 
in the midst, and, and this happens throughout the book of Job, in the midst of this horrible speech, we find this treasure, this wonderful thing that I don't think Elihu himself understood what a wonderful thing he was saying. It's found in verses 10 and 11. But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches more to us than to the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? This material is given negatively, but if you turn it around and make it positive, what you find is a natural outline regarding prayer. The three things that should be marked or that we should use to describe prayer. First of all, prayer is to be a seeking of the presence of God. Elihu here says that no one says, where is God, my maker? No one seeks for the presence of God. When we go to God in prayer, our first priority is to be the presence of God. Just not sure that that is oftentimes the case. It doesn't mean that we, sh we don't have the freedom to ask I'm suffering. I don't want to suffer anymore. Broken relationships need to be healed. God, would you heal these relationships or other matters? Um, yes, we can. We can go to God about these things. But the first issue, the first priority is to seek the presence of God. Sadly, far too often we rush into prayer unprepared whether in what we're thinking or in our hearts or attitudes, we're just, um, as I mentioned, like on the Seinfeld show, it's sort of Kramer coming into the apartment, just sort of skidding in. That's us coming into the presence of God and saying, by the way, here's my list, sort of give it to him and then rush out. God is nothing more than a celestial servant. No, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God's presence. That's where prayers to begin. The second thing we see about prayer is that in the presence of God, we can sing songs in the night. It's a wonderful phrase, I think, to bring comfort, but it's also just a phrase of great beauty. In the Old Testament and in the ancient world and perhaps the pre-modern world, night was a symbol of darkness, suffering, even human sin. You know, now we have electricity. It's, it's never really completely dark. Uh, but if you read the Psalms, if you ever, the next time you go through the book of Psalms, just note how he speaks about nighttime. It's always usually in a very negative way. He can't sleep. Uh, he's thinking about the things he's done. He's crying on his bed. He's wondering where God is. That night is used, uh, well, not only that, night is seen as a time of nightmares. When you, when you have these terrible dreams, and again, we have electricity. Imagine being in a world without electricity, uh, waking up in the middle of the night because of a nightmare, and you wake up and it's completely dark. You go from nightmare to darkness. But in prayer and in the presence of God, we can sing songs in the night. I think the expression we might use today is we could whistle in the dark. That is, when, when maybe reason tells you you should be scared to death, you can, in fact, in the presence of God, relax and sing songs in the night.
Spurgeon said of this passage, songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of man. And I think for all his hardness of heart, Elihu intuitively understands this. Unfortunately, he cannot convey it to Job because of his lack of compassion. The reality is, in the book of Job, we have already heard Job singing songs in the night. Not literally, but figuratively. I'll just read to you two passages. In chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Is this not a wonderful song in the midst of great suffering? In chapter 23, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. To be able to say this in the midst of great suffering is to sing songs in the night. The third thing about prayer is that it is in prayer that we learn the mystery and the meaning of being human. One could say that, if not the difference, but the significant difference between human beings and animals is that we pray. We have the capacity for prayer. In the hymns we sing, we hear about creation raising its praises to God and glorifying God. But creation does not pray. That is a gift that God has given to human beings alone. It is a wonderful gift. But there's more than that. And if you look at verse number 11, it is in prayer that God begins to teach us. Prayer is not intellectually passive. It is not a sterile experience. It is an engaging between two rational creatures. Two passionate creatures. And in the presence of God, He can teach us if we will but learn. By the way, we are told that God can make us wiser than the birds of the air. We have the expression of bird's eye view. It is in the presence of God that God can allow us to transcend our situation and to see, to some degree, what is going on. This happens in prayer. And in the midst of this diatribe against this poor man, Job, Elihu, I think, perhaps not even recognizing it, speaks wonderful words of what prayer is to be. Seeking the presence of God, singing songs in the night, and learning and growing in the presence of God. And yet, for this wonderful passage, these two verses, Elihu concludes in verse number 16, Job opens his mouth with empty talk, and without knowledge he multiplies words. He hasn't got a clue what's going on. You know what? Even if Elihu is right, and he's not, but let's say for the sake of argument, even if Elihu is right, where is his compassion? Where is his tenderness of heart toward his friend? No, I'm right and you're wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about, Job. It is imperative that we stand for what is true. 
it is equally imperative that we be filled with grace and compassion. And I think the key to that is a good, healthy dose of humility to acknowledge, I don't know everything. I, I wish that somebody in the book of Job had stood up and said, could I say something? I don't know what's going on. Nobody says that. Everyone knows. I fear, I fear that sometimes we may be guilty of that as well. But in prayer and the presence of God, He can teach us if we will but learn. But not getting into His presence, coming in without preparation, just sort of winging it as we speak to Him. But prayer, I think, is God intends. Let us pray together. Our Father, we confess that far too often we come into your presence unprepared. And we come with a list, a list of things, a grocery list of things we want you to do. And we have failed to make your presence our priority. Even to sit quietly in your presence. We've not learned from you far too often. And not sung songs in the night. Instead, we've tried to figure out and manipulate situations for our own good. I fear, Father, that in many ways we are more like Elihu than we should be. We want to stand for what is right, but in the process, we've lost any sense of humility. We think we understand you completely and have lost any compassion toward those around us. May your spirit drive these truths home to our hearts. May we in the days to come think on them and meditate on them. May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Again, we thank you for this beautiful day and the freedom that we have to worship you. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.